Hi, this is Dr. Andre Berger, CEO of National ACO, and I'm here in San Francisco at the McDermott, Will, and Emory breakout conference at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Investors meeting, and I have the privilege of interviewing uh, Stephen Bernstein, who is uh, really one of the leading uh, thought leaders in uh, this space of investment in digital health and has an overall, I think, extremely sophisticated, advanced understanding of the marketplace. And it's my privilege, uh, really, to, an honor to have him answer a few questions. So thank you so much, Stephen. Okay, happy to, Dr. Berger. Appreciate it. Um, I'm the global head of McDermott, Will & Emery's health practice, Stephen Bernstein, and we're thrilled to participate in the J.P. Morgan effort. The panel that we had earlier today that Dr. Berger is referring to was uh, digital health and how that's affecting investors. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now which is different than what we saw probably five or ten years ago is number one, the technology is better. It's enhancing the collaboration, the communication among the players, meaning doctors, health plans, and most of all the consumer and the patient who has to engage. That just the mere improvement of the technology is making monumental strides to improve just the collaboration piece. If that doesn't work, then we don't really have anything. The second piece going to what you're talking about in terms of investors, and I would, I would count investors on this in really threefold. One is people actually, venture capitalists, private equity funds, actually making the investment in technology to grow the technology. But there's other important investors here. One is the provider. The provider really is a form of investor in the sense that they need to make sure that they're comfortable with the technology, they're comfortable receiving the aggregations of the data coming in. And the most important investor is the consumer. Will the technology be used by them? Does it fit in their daily lives? I think when the, when the cell phone came out, most people's a flip phone, maybe some people had it, it was about this big, no one ever, people started to use it. But only when we got to the smartphone did it become a smartphone or two in everybody's pocket. And that's what we need to do in terms of the technology. It has to be simple, user-friendly, actionable, and incorporated in people's daily lives and make a difference. If people have to key in their own medical records, never going to happen. And so it's patient engagement tied back to the physician with related incentives, both for the health plans and even pharmaceutical companies. If we can bring that all together, we'll make a difference. That's, uh, those are excellent uh, points, Stephen. I appreciate that. One of the things uh, we worry about, and we're a provider, of course, as an accountable care organization, but on a provider of population health, um, one of the things we worry about when we look at what's going on in the digital health world is the, con the field of dreams concept. You know, build it and they will come. Um, and we're faced with making those decisions every day. The key for us is finding the sweet spot between tech and touch. Right. And how, as a, uh, how do investors, how do they look at uh, uh, that particular kind of threshold in terms of evaluating their investments? Right, one of the things that's happening, and we do a lot of diligence on behalf of private equity funds looking at technology. One of the things that happens is some of the times the entrepreneurs, sometimes they have an unclear message about whether the value of the, the company, if you will, or the startup or whatever it is, is it the technology? Is it the data they're pulling in? Is it both? And so to me, let's start with the data first. Oftentimes, 
in most instances, the data coming in does not belong to the entrepreneur. It's patient-centric. And the more technologies that we can see that are, I would say, patient-directed or patient-controlled, where they're controlling their data, the, the more valuable the technology is, number one. And if the entrepreneur believes that the data belongs to them in its identifiable form, there's an issue there. If on the other hand, they have technologies and tools to de-identify the data, and we don't have to get into the details of what that exactly means, it's complicated, then you're into another data set, and that secondary data set can be used for population health. Because as a practical matter, most pharmaceutical companies or provide, well, in the case of a provider treatment relationship, they care about me. But in the case of population health, they're identifying trends. So what the data needs to be able to show is that there are 10 people like Steve Bernstein in a particular geographic area of a particular age and demographic that have a particular disease state. If you can aggregate that, figure out what therapies help me and the nine other people like me, then you have some outcomes based. And then the trick is, for you as the clinician, you want to know that when this therapy was applied to 10 people with this uh, etiology on disease, and it helped nine of the 10, you say for that 11th patient that's your patient that you're treating, well, nine out of 10 is not bad. Population-based health that helped 10 people with a similar etiology, and you get the 11th patient, and you have the data at your desktop, that's a way to render care. And so on the data piece, that's the data piece. But if you're on top of that, if you're an investor and you're looking at the technology, I think what you're trying to do is close down and make it as tightly knit as possible between the gathering of the data, how many parties it has to go through before it gets the physician so they can deliver the care. The tighter that compression of the data, the better and the higher value, in my view. So um, as a... Uh provider of care for populations, I totally agree with that idea. My question to you is more along the lines of how, based upon the fact that we are moving into more of a value-based risk model in healthcare, uh, and that we are particularly interested in measuring success of what we call the triple aim, which is basically, you know, population management, uh, cost containment, and quality of healthcare, which includes the satisfaction of our patients. How do you take that, those metrics and kind of define the contribution to those metrics right. from a digital platform? So I, I think the first thing is, to me, the change in the reimbursement system from cost-based to outcomes-based is, is the key driver about why digital health is necessary and why it has a chance to succeed. I think in the past, when that, that model wasn't in place, the physicians and the consumers, it was a toy. It wasn't really necessary, it wasn't useful. Not that everything should be driven by economics. But now, with the change in the reimbursement model, a physician and a medical group have every incentive to do all they can. And the incentives have to increase and there has to be greater adoption, but has every incentive to make sure that the patient leaves the, the medical office and the exam with a very clear set of guidelines, tools to make sure they follow the guidelines, motivation to do it, which I'll come back to in a minute, 
And fourth, the ability for the medical group to check in with the patient on a remote basis. That can be through coaches, nurse outreach, technology. And I think the hardest part, if I were a physician and I'm not, is these data feeds coming back in. I'm not sure that certainly small or mid-sized medical groups are not equipped to deal with that, which is why I think we're seeing scale on medical groups growing. So they have the infrastructure to, to manage the data, measure it, and follow back up. What if, what if I told you that we, we are doing this, um, we're providing all of the, shall we say, digital infrastructure on behalf of our physicians, um, and, and they are, can be very small in nature. They can be solo practitioners. Um, now, a small practice cannot afford it's, it's beyond their ability to afford the, the cost of this kind of infrastructure, digital infrastructure. But we can provide it to them at really no cost at all and, um, and bring all this in. What I, the, and so the let me expand. Go ahead. I, I know where you're going on that. And I agree with you in the sense that I was focused on a single medical group. But when that medical group is aggregated or pooled and a participant in an ACO, like your organization, or in other kind of network or an IPA, that affords the opportunity of, I would say, a virtual and real scale where there's other players who can provide the tools and those players have the same incentives to make sure that these kinds of tools are being deployed to improve care and reduce cost. That's the goal and this is a way to reduce the friction in the historic system. How do we reach investors who are sophisticated as you are understand that to be kind of the the desired goal demonstrate that we can provide that today how do we reach those investors who are currently in my view you know kind of going after a very fractured right. uh, you know environment of digital health so I let's be clear about which investors we're talking about there's investors who are actually investing in big medical groups that's one form of investor there are other investors who are investing in the technology tools and they're different. They're going to be different on that. And so I think the idea is, for those who are investing in large medical groups, they're looking for scale, improved quality. They will pair and they will, they will vote with their feet to find the right technology providers who are efficient, where the technology works. And I think you heard one person on the panel saying, basically, will a patient stick with the technology? And I think the hard part is you have Medicare patients, Medicaid patients, behavioral health patients. Will they stick with the technology? Can it be useful to them? And so when I think about patients in the Medicare population, some of them are computer savvy, some are not. And so if we're using technological tools, we have to figure out how we, how we serve both. And then I think there are some tools that are gonna be used like a, a remote scale or something like that where a patient is gonna have to figure out, okay, I gotta stand on the scale. How do I do that? When do I do that? And how does that work? Versus something that's more iPhone-based where some people may not be able to man ma manipulate that very effectively. It has to be tailored. And it's talk about healthcare being local. This is really local to make sure it's, people are trained on the technology. So when an investor is looking at a possible digital health investment, are they, how are they evaluating the ability of that company to penetrate the value-based space and, and, and show some metrics that can be rewarded by risk? So I think my sense of it is the market is also divvied up. 
So start so companies that already have revenues and customer base, they're obviously much easier to evaluate and they can evaluate incomes. I think startups, it's a little bit of a flyer to figure out, does the technology work? Have they run a pilot? How often have the patients stuck with the technology? What data is flowing through it? And what are, what are the outcomes on two fronts? One is, what's the patient uptake? Have they used it and for how long? And then what are the actual clinical results from using the technology? Those pieces have to be mapped out. And I think for startups, it would be wise to run those kinds of pilot projects. And if you have a successful one, it, it, should, enhance your it should enhance your valuation pretty effectively. Where do you see the role of AI in the future direction of digital health? So I think it's at its infancy. I think there's no question that AI is a useful tool, and let's be clear what we're talking about, repetitive machine learning. So that where you see throughputs of patients in the device, and it's teaching itself what those elements mean. So if they see one patient that has a congested cough, a fainting spell, and um, you know allergy-like symptoms, that's one patient. But if you start to see three or four, can the technology begin to identify what that might mean? Now, as you start to head down that path, there are obviously a lot of regulatory pieces to keep in mind. Those become potentially diagnosing tools, and the FDA need the FDA regulatory landscape needs to be looked at to manage that. But that's a role that I think makes sense, and I think we've seen it in terms of digesting large amounts of medical uh, journal information and keeping that and the computer whipping through it faster than a human can. So I think there is a role. I think it's it's just it's in the process of maturing. Given what we've discussed and kind of what your understanding is of the landscape, how do you see the role of accountable care organizations, specifically in the Medicare space, fitting into the digital health progression? Well, it's number one, it's a reorientation and a reorganization of how the care delivery system is set up. And that I think is critical. And I think the digital health piece can get at the elements of how care can be improved at reduced cost. And I think your question earlier in this discussion about, about uh, your organization and physicians basically getting the assistance they need, even if they're not in a controlled medical group, but using the IPA structures and the ACO structures to provide those tools where they can manage complicated populations, manage lots more data, and improve the care and reduce the cost at the same time, tied to the reimbursement model. That's where I see the future going. I think we have more to go, but I think the, the operating structures and the technology combined ends up being a one plus one equals some multiple. Well, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. This is an amazing interview uh, with Stephen Bernstein from McDermott, Will, Will and Emery. Uh, obviously and clearly a forward-thinking expert in this area, and we're very privileged to have conducted this interview with Stephen here at the McDermott, Will and Emery Healthcare Breakout Conference, J.P. Morgan Investor Conference in San Francisco. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks very much.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.